There's a couple of important pieces of information I wanted to share with you before I jump into the sermon. <clears throat> uh, first off, next week will be the first Sunday in 2020. And as a result, it's also the first week that we will be beginning our um, uh, Sprouts uh, program for children between ages three and five years old. So those children, what will happen, parents, if you don't, aren't already aware, um, if you want them to be a part of Sprouts, um, then you pick them up from Sunday school, you bring them into the church service um, where they used to be in the nursery the whole time, uh, for some of you, uh, then you would pick them up from their Sunday school class, they'd come in during the song portion of the service, then they would come up for the children's time, and then from the children's time will be dismissed out for sprouts. So that's for three to five-year-olds. And if you have any other questions, you can feel free to talk to Caitlin um, Vanderholz. Raise your hand over there, Caitlin. You can talk to her and she can give you any information. Anything else I need to say? No. That's good. Okay. Um, and then uh, also wanted to just make you aware of what's coming up in the next couple of months with regards to preaching. Um, so we're done with we're done with uh, Romans. We've gone through Thanksgiving, Christmas here, and then, oh, what's next? What's next? Hopefully you're excited about what's coming up next. But for January and February, we're going to be doing a short series on God's nature being triune, so the Trinity, and then how that applies to human beings being created in his image, and especially the maleness and femaleness of human beings. So we're taking the nature of God and us being image bearers of God. And then in Sunday evenings, um, I'm going to be fleshing that out a little bit more, and we're going to be talking on biblical manhood and womanhood. So that'll be happening January, February, and then Lord willing, starting in March, we'll have a longer series through the book of 1 Corinthians. So that's what's coming up. But before we start that next week, I wanted to have one more week that kind of piggybacks off of the themes that we have had in this Christmas series, that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. And in last week's sermon, we basically had a question posed to us, are we going to idolize or are we going to worship? Are we going to have false worship in our lives or are we really going to embrace and follow after Jesus Christ? A couple of weeks ago, uh, the sermon, I think it was before that, I preached on 1 Timothy 1. And in 1 Timothy 1, we saw the Apostle Paul saying this trustworthy statement is that he's the worst sinner he knows. And yet, that doesn't cause him to despair. He actually says, and Jesus is the greater Savior. And so being the worst sinner I know isn't the worst news of all because there's greater news in Jesus Christ. And so we found in these sermons that actually in being open and transparent and vulnerable and taking off the masks that we actually find greater freedom and hope to point to the magnificent power of Jesus Christ himself. I didn't want this Christmas series to end with this aspect of just us saying, oh, we're the worst sinners we know, woe is me. But instead to say, how does Christ work his power in us so that even though we're weak, that Christ shows his power through us who are weak? And so I, I think it was a couple of months ago even that I had a conversation with David and my desire was to preach a message like this on this Sunday regarding the topic of church discipline. Now that might sound awkward to you to say a, a New Year's message on church discipline. 
watch out people. 2020's coming, you know? But, you know, sometimes when people hear church discipline, they think of church discipline with uh, kind of like that's a downer or that causes me stress. And I think that there's at least two reasons, if not many more reasons, why we might think a message on church discipline is a downer. And one would be because discipline, in your experience, has been practiced in sinful ways. Whether in the home or in the church, you've seen it practiced in sinful ways. And therefore, Instead of being against sinful discipline, you're just against discipline in general, which wouldn't be the right conclusion to make. Or another reason could be is that you just simply haven't experienced discipline, and so you're afraid of what it could mean, and you let your fears of what it could mean define your experience instead of saying, what does the scriptures actually say about discipline? See, discipline is actually a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a good thing. But it is a good thing and a good gift of God, a good gift that God has given to his children so that our masks are removed, our idols are addressed, and we actually grow in godliness. I know many of you have heard this before, but the same root word for discipline is found in the word disciple. And so the scriptures actually teach us that someone who is not disciplined is not a disciple of Jesus Christ. So Hebrews, the author writes this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated. Who's the all there? It's all believers. So if you are left without discipline, whereas all believers have participated in discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. A disciple is disciplined. And God's discipline is perfect, good, and right. It's a discipline that shows our idolatry and grows us so that we kill idols in our lives. And and just for clarity's sake, idols, again, meaning those things that we prize at the level of God. Those things in our lives that we love more than God, that our affections are drawn more to than are drawn to God. This discipline points those things out, and God's discipline then causes us to then love God more than those other things. Now, the most well-known chapter about church discipline is Matthew 18, which we're going to be studying in today. And you can feel free to turn your Bibles already to Matthew 18. But what's interesting about Matthew 18 is that Jesus emphasizes in this chapter that the discipline is motivated by love. In verse 6 of chapter 18, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The little ones in this chapter are referring to God's children. It's not just referring to literal children. 
But all those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, all those who are followers of Christ, are the little ones here. Does God love his children? Can you see that in the words here? It would have been better for a millstone to be tied around a person's neck than, and thrown into the sea than for someone or that person to cause one of God's children to sin. Does God love his kids? Yes. Resolutely, seriously, eternally loves his children. And as Jesus speaks these words to us, we should be tremendously encouraged. But we should also be thinking about the ramifications of this love. What's the implication of this? We should ask ourselves, how should this cause me then, this love of God, how should this cause me to treat my brothers and sisters in Christ? But before we answer that, I need to take a little bit of a sidestep here because I want to ensure, I, I don't want to assume that everyone here is a child of God. This chapter here is Jesus speaking to people who are disciples of Jesus. And what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? A disciple is a follower of Christ, but to become a follower of Christ, one lays down themselves before the Lord. That they recognize their sinfulness, meaning that they are unworthy to come before God. They have, they have rebelled against the king and they cannot make themselves better. They cannot impress God by any of their works or anything that they do. Nothing that they do would ever make them right with God. The only one who can make them right with God is Jesus. And Jesus came and lived the perfect life. And on the cross, he died the death that sinners deserved. So that anyone who would turn from their sinfulness and turn to the Savior would find forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or to start that journey of discipleship. And so, because of God's great love in offering us a forgiveness that is so grand and free, how do we display that love towards our brothers and sisters? I mean, because the reality is, is even though we turn from our sins at one point in time and turn to Jesus, that does not mean that all sins are gone in our lives, right? Right? We still have idols in our lives. And so, and Jesus is committed, and the Father is committed to our growth in godliness, right? And so, Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 18, and he says, this is what commitment looks like. And he uses more of this illustration of a family. This is how God's children are to act in the family of God. We have a loving Father who is committed to our welfare. And therefore, as children, we are to be committed to each other's welfare as well. And so you look in verse 14, and in verse 14, Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Is it God's will to lose any of his children? No. It is not his will to lose any of his children or that any of his children should die and experience suffering in hell. So because the father takes great care of his little ones, including you who have trusted in Christ, Jesus tells his disciples then, don't mistreat other children whom God loves. Instead, we should get along as a family. 
But Jesus now tells us how we should interact with one another when sin takes place in our midst. And notice something important about what I said there. When sin takes place. It's not if sin takes place. Sin is going to take place all the time until Jesus returns. And I think it's helpful to note, or we need to remember this, because too often people tend to think of church as though it's supposed to be only perfect all the time, but we all still have a flesh that sins. We're all still the worst sinners we know. And God doesn't say, then run from those people who sin. If I have to run from sinners, I got to get away from myself. Instead, Jesus tells us how we should interact with family members based on the love of God towards us. And Jesus says how we interact with each other is to discipline each other. Now you say, that sounds so weird. That's how we're going to help each other grow in godliness is to discipline each other? It doesn't seem like discipline would be the answer for helping brothers and sisters in Christ. But again, I think it's because we have a warped view of what discipline is. Most people seem to think that discipline is confronting someone so that they feel shamed and you have the purpose of kicking them out. That's not biblical church discipline. Okay? You, you're listening. Yeah? That's not biblical church discipline. You know, as, as I've become more um, engaged within the last year with uh, watching some football, I've actually thought about discipline. As I'm, as I'm watching these teams play and thinking about them getting better and better. When is a football player no longer disciplined? When, when he stops playing for the team. He's disciplined as long as he's on the team. And he... he goes into practices knowing he's going to be disciplined. Why? Because he's on the team. What would you think of a team where the coach says, I never discipline my team. I never do it. You want, you're going to root for that team? Nah, not at all. What would you think of a player who says, stop disciplining me. I am not going to show you how I run. I'm not going to show you how I throw a ball. I'm not going to show you anything. What's going to happen to that player? See you later. You're no longer on the team. Discipline only happens as long as you're on the team. And it ought to happen always when you're on the team. Do you get the illustration? And yet Jesus presses this a little bit further because he doesn't just say we're part of a team. He says we're part of a family. We're part of the creator God's family. And so there's a close familial type of love that's displayed. Discipline is actually a sign that you are dearly loved by the father. And if you accept discipline, then you're a child and you want to be a part of God's family. So dis discipline isn't something done in sinful anger or pride or self-righteousness. It's done because the father loves his children and is committed. He's committed to not lose any one of them. That's what the passage we're studying today reveals. And this passage actually shows us a little bit more that God promises to work through his children to chase after his children. So with that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read 
verses 15 through 20 together in chapter 18. Chapter 18. So let's pray. Father, oh, Father, thank you that we can call you Father, that we can cry out to you in our weakness, and Lord, I am weak. I don't know what to say as I ought to say it. I cannot change my own heart nor the hearts of the people here. But Lord, you promise that you, through the power of your word, will take your word into the hearts of your children and apply it by the strength of the Spirit. So I ask for your Spirit to do that today. I ask that we would have eyes to see the beauty of what your word teaches, that we would rejoice in you, that we would repent of sin and cling to righteousness, that we would love Jesus with greater zeal and purpose and intention, and that even we as a church family We as a church family would love one another all the more, week by week, month by month, as you give them to us. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father, my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I think that the main idea of this passage is that the local church must grow together in lovingly disciplining one another. So I could change the title local church and say, Ventura Baptist Church must grow together in lovingly disciplining one another. That's how we're going to grow. And I know, again, it sounds weird, but discipline is how we display our love for each other and not just our love for each other, but our commitment to Jesus Christ. That when we say, I'm a mess and you're a mess, that we then exult in Jesus and say, but Jesus is the Savior, so that when the world looks on to us, that we can say, it's not about us. There's no way I could be where I am without Jesus Christ. So the local church, Ventura Baptist Church, must grow together in lovingly disciplining one another. And Jesus gives us a process of what this ought to look like, at least one example of a process of how this ought to look like with regards to discipline. And he shows us in verse 15 that we should be concerned for the spiritual good of our family. Look at verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So so notice the word brother. Because this is someone you are to treat as family. Because... You are family in Jesus Christ. At least you both profess to be family in Jesus Christ. So he's a brother or she's a sister. Now again, don't miss the context of these verses. 
What's profound is that in these earlier verses, Jesus uses an illustration of one sheep wandering off away from the 99. And and what, do you remember that parable that Jesus uses? And then the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep. And now, right after that parable, Jesus moves into this one and says, and God's children should imitate their Abba. The other sheep should go after the one sheep who's strayed. We imitate our God, and God works through his children to reach his children who are wandering. But but notice, notice how difficult this could be. Because Jesus doesn't just say in this text, if a brother sins, I mean, that would be true enough. We could take, if a brother sins, do this. But do you know, look in your Bible, if your brother sins, next two words, against you. Oh, how dare they? I mean, this isn't just you're annoyed by something somebody did. I mean, we we all have experienced those types of things. This is saying this person legitimately sinned against God by doing something against you. And Jesus says, you have a responsibility. What? How, How do you respond when somebody sins against you? Naturally. Sometimes some people close up, sweep it under the rug. We're not even going to talk about it. Other people, they talk to everybody else about it. They gossip about it. Other people, they have a nice pity party and they invite maybe, you know, one or two people on into this party where they can put down this other person and feel better about themselves. We all have kind of different responses. Some people become bitter. They don't tell anybody, but they just let that bitterness fester in their hearts. And they say, well, if they want to say they're sorry, they can come to me, but I'm not going to go to them. Many broken relationships have remained that way because of the stubbornness of the person who has been hurt. And that person can say, but they're the one who's wrong. Yeah, they, may be, they were wrong in what they did, but your response is wrong. Why? Why is your response wrong? Because you seem to have forgotten the extravagant love that the Father has given to you. God the Father pursued you while you were still a sinner. Praise the Lord he didn't say, I'm just going to wait until they say they're sorry. Right? And, so that's the first thing, you've forgotten about the extravagant love of the Father towards you. And secondly, you clearly reveal you don't have a concern about the soul of someone who sinned. If someone actually sinned and they're not repenting, shouldn't we be concerned for them? Instead of being concerned about my glory and my fame and them making me feel better about me? No! I should be concerned for their soul, right? The Father cares for them. So we seek to imitate the Father. If you do care for them, you're going, you're not going to go around gossiping. You're going to go to them first. You're going to go to them in privacy and humility. And I say in humility because the goal is to gain the brother. The goal is not to make yourself right and for them to say, oh, you were right and I was wrong. That's not the goal. 
The goal is for their godliness. The goal is that they would know more of the love and grace of God. We can go about discipline in sinful ways, right? And we can even see that later on in the scriptures in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul writes regarding an aspect of discipline within the church, that it was right for them to discipline, but they were taking it too far. And there in that passage, Paul says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, meaning you need to stop. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul's emphasis in church discipline is the same as that of Christ's. We do this out of love. We do this because we're concerned for the person. And so Jesus says here, this person is sinning. An individual talks to that person. If that person repents, if that person says, yes, I have been sinning, then you've gained a brother. Meaning that the family member has returned and in that we should rejoice. This is the mentality within the house of God, within local churches. This should be the mentality within local churches. And by the way, hopefully just to emphasize this a little bit more, I usually say this within uh, whenever we have Discovering Ventura classes and explain to people who we are as a church family, but I'll say it again here. This aspect of church discipline should be happening all the time within this church should be happening all the time within any church. Uh, you're, when you're on the team, you're always being disciplined. Uh, meaning, uh, let me just put it in another way. If you have friends within this church family, which I hope you do, then you should know each other well enough to know your, the weaknesses and sins that people are dealing with. You should know each other well enough even to be hurt by each other, because that's even the illustration of Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you. If you don't know people well enough to know the weaknesses and sins, how in the world are you going to help them grow in godliness? If you're not opening up yourself enough to allow other people to know your weaknesses and sins, how in the world is the church going to help you grow in Christ-likeness? Do, do you get the point? So this should be happening all the time. This should be happening all the time within a healthy church. God's wrath is revealed when there's no sins revealed within a church. God's mercy is revealed when sins are revealed and he addresses those. So Jesus gives us this first step. Go to the person, care about them, love them enough to talk to them. But there can be times where they won't listen. And when I say they, I'm including myself in this. I've been prideful enough to not listen to one person who talks to me. Have, have any of you here? Yeah, it's just one person. I'm right. You know, then two people come or three. Maybe I'm wrong. And that's where Jesus goes in this. Pursue in humility with other family members. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, privacy is still important. 
Sin is not to be flaunted. It isn't to be given more attention than absolutely necessary. I mean, if we love people, we are going to believe all things, hope all things, endure all things with those brothers and sisters in our family. Now, believing all things and hoping all things doesn't mean that we tolerate and we're just okay with sinful behavior. But I think believing all things and hoping all things is that we actually hope for their repentance. And so we're going to come alongside because God has given us this process. We're going to follow our father's example and seek to do this. So someone may not listen to a single person and therefore they bring along two or three other people to become witnesses in, in the conversation. Now I want to emphasize something I think that's particularly important to note here. This passage, obviously well known as a church discipline passage, and I, I believe it applies to the local church, which I'll explain a little bit more in the next point. But Jesus doesn't say here in this passage that during the first or even the second phase that elders have to be involved. Now, there can clearly be appropriate context where an elder, an elder must be involved in, in the first phase. An elder must be involved in a second phase, but they don't have to be involved in this. I've had probably many situations in my pastoral experience where somebody comes to me and they say, Pastor Timothy, do you know what so-and-so did? Or do you know how so-and-so acted? And do you know what maybe some of my first questions are going to be? What have you done? Are you talking to the person? This is what you need to do. You need to go back. Because it seems like what some people do, it's like, you know, it's like the young child who's tattling on the other child and they just want mom or dad to fix it so that they can feel better. But, but what's really important to recognize is that we're all children in the family of God and we all have the same responsibility to love God's children. We all do, Ventura. We all have the responsibility to pursue each other. And so... Sometimes when I've talked to people and they say, do you know what they did? They did blah, blah, blah. I'll say, well, you need to talk to them. And they're like, well, no, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Well, clearly it's a big enough deal that you came and told me about it. And if you're concerned about their godliness, then you should talk to them about it too. And let them know that you're doing this out of love, not because you hate them. We all have a responsibility. Now, by the way, this second phase of discipline, I'm just letting you know as a church family, this is not uncommon within Ventura as well. And you say, what? This isn't, un this isn't uncommon? Like it, it happens more than like once a decade? Yeah. yeah, the reason why you don't know is because we still try to keep those things private as what Jesus says. But it happens. It happens in all different people's lives that we need each other to talk to each other to help each other and to point each other towards Christ. But sometimes we can even be so obstinate that we won't listen to multiple people talking to us. And because God is committed to not lose any of his own, Jesus teaches us this, to discipline the sinner as a family. Now, actually, I, sh I should have broken up point three into two different points because verse 17 
actually shows two different steps. But I just included it all into one. I'll explain more as we move along. But let's just read verse 17 again. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If he refuses, the word refuse here in this text actually refers to someone who hears without heeding. Okay? Someone who hears what is being said, but they won't implement it. There's a lot of different ways that we can go about doing this. Have you ever heard somebody say, or maybe you've said this before in your own life, um, somebody confronts you and your response is, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Are you apologizing genuinely when you say that? No. You're just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sad that you feel that way, but I didn't do anything wrong. Any of you ever said before, I know I have, I'm sorry, but anybody ever say that one? Yeah. Is that apologizing? No, it sounds eerily familiar to Adam and Eve. Well, I mean, it's them, and it's them, and it's, I mean, I know I did something wrong, but I mean, come on. You're not owning up to your sin. Now, there are other people, and just to be more transparent, this is where I can be as a person. I want to come across as though I am obedient. So I will verbalize things in a way that shows I'm sorry, but then I just go back to normal life. So am I really sorry if there's no change? No, because there's no heeding that statement. There's no heeding the agreement. I heard, but I'm still holding on to myself. The point of discipline is not just getting somebody else to say, I'm sorry, you're right, I'm wrong, fine. The point of discipline is so that a brother and sister is restored in fellowship with God and with the people of God, that they are actually growing in godliness. But then you can ask this question, why does Jesus go to this level of, of saying, if the person refuses to listen, tell it to the church? Whoa, that's, a, that's big. And, you know, actually, I think that we can have some misperceptions of this statement um, because of how we've grown up in our culture and society in the Western world. In the Western culture and society, we highly prize individualism, right? And so to bring an individual up before the church, it's like the individual against everybody else. In an Eastern society and context, your identity is found in the group. So to be brought before the whole church and then for Jesus to say, then that church should be pursuing that person is actually a sign of love saying to that person, we are still committed to you. Will you be committed to the Lord? It's not an action of shaming. It's an action of love. We've had this happen within Ventura. Some of you probably remember this a few years ago. Well, I remember when we were going to that third level of discipline and I, re I realized, you know what? 
In every other situation where I have seen more public church discipline, this third level of discipline was just a means to kick them out. It was like we let the church know, and then a month later, they're no longer members. And I realized, wait a second, Jesus shows us this is part of the process. This is part of the process of repentance, that the person might listen to the voice of the church. And so with that one individual, praise the Lord that God used that as a means to gain a child. This is extremely important. Tell it to the church. Now, I mentioned that I believe this is talking about the local church. Some people would say there's no way this is talking about the local church because the local church didn't exist in Jesus' time period. But Jesus is talking about things that could happen in the future. So if he's talking about potential future events, it would make sense that he could bring up the church because that's going to come out in the future. In addition, just practically speaking, tell it to the church. If this is talking about the universal church, I just want to know where the email list is where we let every single believer in Jesus know about the sin of the one individual. Anybody have the email mass list? No. The practicality of this statement is tell it to the local church. And by the way, this is why I believe that joining with a local gathering of believers is so important. I've had a conversation at least once uh, with, with a person who said, listen, you can still do discipline with believers and you don't have to be a member of a church. And I, I've said, you know, I've got friends who are part of other churches and I can encourage them in godliness and they can encourage me, but I can't go to the full lengths of discipline with them. I can't. I mean, the apostle Paul says to the Corinthians that they are to purge out the person who persists in sin. And my question is, is how do you purge someone out who wasn't in? Right? How do I tell it to the church? Which church? Not the universal one. A local church. And which local church? It'd be the one that they have committed with. That's who we talk to. So Jesus says, tell it to the church. Prayerfully, by the Lord's grace, this will draw the person back to the Lord if they haven't already repented and they will see, wow, God loves me to this degree. He's committed to not lose any of his children. Yet that's not always the case. If there's persistence and obstinacy, then Jesus says, to treat them as a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, make it clear to them that you're treating them as though they are not a disciple of Jesus. Now, I can't know for sure. We can't know for sure. But you're going to say someone who lives in unrepentance is betraying the testimony of a Christian. This is how the Apostle Paul would write to many different churches where he'll say something like, I've warned you as I've warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the people in the church could be like, wait, whoa, I thought you just said that we are secure for all eternity. Yes, I did. And if you're secure for all eternity in Christ, you can't live in unrepentance. You can't. It just doesn't go together. So therefore, if a person continues to not be repentant, then essentially what they're saying is, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. Or to use that sports illustration, I don't want to be a part of the team. Get me out of here. But it's more significant than that, 
obviously. You're saying you don't want to be a part of God's family. In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is teaching the Corinthians about discipline and urging the church to discipline this one person, he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Delivering over to Satan, that's sobering. That's not something that any church member should wish on another church member. But in the end, the hope is that their sinful ways or their idols would be destroyed and they might turn back to Christ. If they are a genuine believer, God's going to use this to draw them back to himself. Do you believe that? Yes. If they are not a believer, then our prayer is, Lord, destroy the idols so that they may be one with you on your return. But it's as though Jesus is telling us as a church, we're to go through certain means of chasing after each other. But at a certain point, we say, Lord, we've done all we can. Not just all we can, we've done what you've told us to do. And now we lay this person before you. I love how the Puritans once, or one Puritan once spoke of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the hound dog of heaven, nipping at our heels as we run from God. And that's our prayer. God, chase them. Hound them. So when we say, okay, they're delivered over. I don't think that that means that then we don't care about the person anymore. I do think that we ought to be praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. Some of you, many of you were a part of the church when we actually did excommunicate someone from our church family years ago. I still have a reminder on my phone that pops up every once in a while. Pray for so-and-so. We should still be praying. Because the goal of all of this is restoration. That's even, even this deliver over to Satan so that they might be restored in the day of Christ. That's the goal of it. So I mentioned verse 17 should actually be broken up into two points. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's final phase of discipline. If you mark in your Bibles, you could draw a line after that first sentence and say, discipline ends here. Discipline ends here because that's when it's excommunication. That's when it's, they're, they are no longer treated as a member of this church. Honestly, I am, I'm grateful for God's design in this. God is serious about his glory and he's serious about his glory being displayed in the church. He's serious about his glory being displayed in the midst of our weakness. He's serious about revealing sin so that we would grow in holiness. God is serious and he's serious about his relentless pursuit of his children. He loves his own So maybe practical implication for you. Within this church family, 
Do you have people who you know will point out sins in your life if there are sins? If you don't, find them. Make it known. We need discipline. We need to grow in godliness, don't we? If you are a disciple of Jesus, that means you are a follower of Jesus, which means in order to follow him more, you need to be disciplined in order to follow him. So you need people who can know this. I'm so thankful for the many people that I have in my life in this church family that will point it out to me. I don't always like it in the moment. But I know these people love me, and I love them. And just as I've committed to them and to you to pursue you, I need people to commit to pursuing me. This is how God has designed it. And just in case you say, well, why is this so important? Just to give a final, final emphasis, verses 18 through 20, I think, give a fitting conclusion. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Verse 18 can be actually quite confusing. In the Greek, the translation is confusing. But it's more literally translated, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. That's future and past. Right, that's why the ESV just puts it in the future tense. But what can be confusing about a future tense is it can make it sound like if the church decides on something, then we make the decrees of heaven. Whatever's bound here has been bound in heaven or will be bound in heaven. Mm. I think God's in charge. Don't you? Yeah. So the point of this statement is that whatever has been bound here will have been bound in heaven, meaning that in time God acts, but it was already ordained in the past. If there is godly church discipline, then God is actually saying, I'm on the side of my children. I am working through my children. So someone who is going through more degrees of discipline should be humbled by this statement. Because I know for me, I can tend to blame shift. Oh, you, it's you, it's your fault. Oh, no, it's your fault. Oh, no, it's your fault. And God says, if you want to take issue with anyone, take issue with me. Because in eternity past, I bound this. So then we should take seriously the next principle Jesus makes in verse 19. If two people agree concerning something they ask, it will be done by my Father. Now, people can totally take this out of context. If two people, Christians, come together and say, I think we should have a million dollars, then God's going to make sure that happens. No, no. Get the context of these words. The context is within church discipline. And it's talking about in his name. We're seeking God's glory. I had so many times before as a pastor where I've thought, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right moment? Um, elders, have you ever felt that way before? Just raise your hand if you have, you know. But we don't know always what the right step is. But it's so good to know that Jesus always knows. And Jesus is saying he's right there. 
It goes on in the verse. It says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. <laughs> uh, a lot of times we use that verse just to talk about life in general. Oh, I was out at Starbucks and I saw another Christian. It's so true. Where two or three are gathered, Jesus is in the midst. I, just newsflash. If I was imprisoned for my faith in Jesus Christ and I'm the only one in the prison cell, Jesus is there. Okay? So it wasn't like Jesus shows up whenever two Christians are together. That's not what the verse is saying. The verse is talking about a specific instance. Two or three are coming together to make a decision. If your church, if the local church is only comprised of two or three or four people, Jesus is not a fair weather friend. He doesn't say, I'm here when the times are good, but when the times are tough and you're not sure exactly what to do, I'm out. Jesus says, I'm there. In the midst, in the middle of this decision, I am there with you. Because God is committed. God is committed to not lose any one of his children. And so he will work through his children to chase after his children. I think Matthew brings this up just from a broader context of this book to reveal again that Jesus is literally Emmanuel. He is God with us. And praise his name that he's with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. We have the confidence that because Jesus was forsaken on the cross, that we as his children will never be forsaken by God. Jesus went to the far country of sin and became sin and endured punishment so that we can return home and be loved by the Father and be declared righteous in his sight. So now as a new community of believers, we can continue to exhibit that love to each other and imitate our Abba. Praise Jesus that he's with us and that because of him, we can know the serious love of the Father. And praise the Father who is resolute in keeping us as his own. He will not allow one of his little ones to perish. So, or therefore, let's imitate our Father and lovingly sharpen and discipline each other because we are a part of his family. Praise his name. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for teaching me even this past year more and more of the importance of your discipline and that your discipline is for our good your discipline reveals your love. Thank you, Father, for teaching me this. And I pray that you would teach us as a church family more and more of this. Even as we sing to end our time together in worship, I pray that we would think about the words of this song, Lord. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Your salvation is so rich and so great. And even our growth in godliness is part of the sanctification, the, the salvation you've given to us. Lord, oh, how great and glorious your commitment is to us. And truly, even your commitment to us can be said it's a commitment to your glory. I pray, Father, that we would grow in our commitment to your glory. A commitment to the trustworthy statement of Paul. We're the worst sinners we know. And Jesus is greater than we could ever imagine. And so for your glory, we pray.
Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.